Welcome to Penumbra Cast, The Other Scene. My guest today is Daniel Wilson, who lives in Montreal, Quebec. He is a member of Gifrique and of the Freudian School of Quebec. He is interested in the contemporary psychoanalytic clinic and the relationship of Freud's and Lacan's metapsychologies to the history and philosophy of science. His articles on these questions include Freud's Lamarckian Clinic in the Sunni Press volume Inheritance in Psychoanalysis, edited by Joel Goldback and James Godley, as well as Writing the Drive from Freud's Theory of Bisexuality to Wittgenstein and the Limits of Language in Differences, a Journal of Feminist Cultural Studies, and The Freudian Thing and the Ethics of Speech in Conturin. In this episode, Daniel Wilson will discuss the concept of the thing, which Lacan discussed in reading Freud's remarks on dusting, and which is closely linked to the concept of the drive. Yeah. So the first question I wanted to hear you undertake is about psychoanalysis, a definition of psychoanalysis. How would you define psychoanalysis for someone who may not really know about it or not know so clearly what is distinctive about it? Mm -hmm. I guess I would say that psychoanalysis is um, the offer of an unconditional welcome for the patients or the, the subject's speech about things that they have never spoken about before. And, you know, the, these these things, um, there are things that, like, we don't speak about because we are um, ashamed to speak about them, don't want other people to know about them. There are other things that um, you don't speak about because you've never found a way to speak about them before. And then there are other things that um, sort of can always remain beyond what you can speak about, but which insist in your experience. And um, psychoanalysis is a way to find a way to, to live for those things that others can't know anything about. Yeah. So it's really, thank you. It's really interesting in what you say that, that it resonates, that bringing up what can't be talked about or what you have never, or one has never spoken about is crucially important here. And yet like there's, you're, you're putting it formally and yet it's interesting to think about what someone might imagine as what can't be talked about. And that might differ very widely. So when you say living for the things that well, I, th I think the, the the first thing you said about what you what different people imagine can't be talked about varies is is like a, a really good way of of broaching the topic because those are all of the things that you can imagine that you couldn't talk about or that you can imagine you couldn't say and then beyond that there are all of the things that you you didn't know you couldn't talk about like memories experiences um, you know what what is sort of brought brought by the dream that opens pathways to talk about things that 
that you you didn't know you hadn't um, made a space for in your life. And and then um, and then there's 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 a, a whole dimension of experience that just it doesn't there's no space for it in what other people can know about you. There's no um, it sort of falls out of of what can be described, falls out of language. And th- these are the most the most sort of intimate and essential elements of our experience. And I think so often, like especially for for like you know for, for neurotics, it's we make compromises that we we give up on these these parts of our experience that we haven't explored that that introduce fear into us and panic and anxiety in order to sort of pretend that we're participating in a world that is rewarding and that we feel well integrated into. And I think the 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 question is finally um, how to how to find a way to use your life to express and to make a space for the part of the being that sort of doesn't fit into the social as opposed to using your life as a way to repress, to protect yourself from the part of the being that doesn't fit into the social. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah. And do you think that's something that happens in the course of the analysis or do you think that's something that waits until the analysis ends? I think it's something that happens in the course of an analysis. And I think that there's a um, sort of as as an analysis, as one has the experience of this, new new horizons of interior experience open up. And as one knows more about this sort of scene of intimate interiority, the question presents itself in sort of more and more forceful terms that you have a choice to either find a way to express, to realize, to manifest this dimension of experience or to not realize, not manifest this dimension of experience. So I think that that sort of the, that this exploration of a dimension of experience that has remained unconscious, unknown, intensifies itself as an analysis goes along. And yeah, so so one is led by the experience of an analysis to new ways to access and act on parts of one's experience that one didn't necessarily have access to in the same way before. Yeah. So maybe as a final question before we enter into the concept that we want to discuss today, which is the thing, I was thinking that it might be interesting to to say something about the relationship and difference between psychoanalysis as a theory that finds a space in in academia, for example, at the Center for the Study of Psychoanalysis and Culture, where I work, and psychoanalysis as a very intimate experience, which is what you are describing. And I think you have you're very involved in both in both and mm-hmm. closely familiar with both. So mm-hmm. so how, what could you what could you say about that since perhaps in this context, well where I'm developing this podcast, we are in a uh yeah, it's starting from an academic and theoretical mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean I guess the the psychoanalysis is um it's finally about or the, the practice of psychoanalysis is about what you do. Um and what what one does is is always sort of separate from what one what says or writes. I mean, this isn't to say that there's an a, a abrupt that there's no relationship between these things. But I think that you know the it's um, the thing that one confronts in 
psychoanalytic experience is a, a knowledge is produced, the question arises of what you're going to do with this knowledge in, you know, really intimate ways, um, ways that are within one's life. So wh when one knows something about one's relationship to one's partner, to one's work, um, to one's friends, one's family, what are you going to do about that? If, if you make the decision to um, act on that knowledge, it has real consequences and it, it modifies relationships. And I think sometimes those consequences are things that are, are hard to deal with. Sometimes those consequences are things that are hard to deal with, but necessary. One can be for the consequences that result from these sort of changes that having a knowledge that comes in psychoanalysis provokes. So I guess the, like a, a difference is that when one is writing about, about things, um, that change of position isn't necessary, right? Like it's, it's, you don't, you don't have to, it's, it's not in what, what's written. Um, it's in what you do. So in writing about psychoanalysis and in using psychoanalysis as theory, there's no, um, it becomes, it, it's a different way of approaching this set of problematics. And I think that it, this is just to say, like in, in everyone has to act. And I think writing about psychoanalysis, doing psychoanalysis in as theory has consequences and it produces, it can produce a knowledge that sort of puts one in a position to act on this knowledge or not act on its knowledge, but it doesn't necessarily do that. N none of this is necessary. Um, but I think that just in terms of a difference, psychoanalysis is, as a practice, is all about what one does. And sort of by definition, academic writing is about what one writes, what one says, how those things can be useful to other people. Yeah, thank you. So now let's move on to, to the thing. Maybe it would make sense to start by, by saying why this would be a, a concept for psychoanalysis, because I mean, people who have already read certain texts may know what that involves or may have heard in German Dosting referenced or something like that. But but why don't we make that a little bit explicit sure. start and then we'll see what it means. So I guess like um, the real place to start is with the uh, Freud's Project for Scientific Psychology, which is what, what Lacan turns to in Seminar 7 when he wants to sort of to find a way to talk about something that drops out of scientific knowledge. And I, I think that for um, the way that Freud finds it, encounters the problem of Dosting is both telling and is an encounter with a problematic that in some ways goes beyond what Freud is able to do with Dosting. So in the Project for Scientific Psychology, Freud starts out by, um, this is this pre-psychoanalytic uh, sort of abandoned project of Freud's. He wants to provide an entirely scientific psychology, a description of what's at stake in human psychology in terms of the sort of mathematically discernible flows of energy through the, the, the body and brain of human beings. So he starts out and he says that, you know, in simple animals, you have basically reflex actions. You know, something, something comes in from the outside and the animal like reacts to it and eats it. And then when you get up into complex things like human beings, you have the problem of storing energy when the thing that you want is not present. So complex animals have to be in an environment where the object of their desire is not present and they have to have a way of both storing the energy that will allow them to go after this object and also they have to have a way of knowing what this object is that they're going after when it's not present to them in their environment um, so that they'll know when to react on this thing. So Freud sort of develops this problem and then pushing it further and into human psychology, he encounters the fact that what humans are looking for has never 
never been present in reality. So the object of human desire, and this he encounters this as sort of like in, in terms of the logic of the argument he's following, has always been missing, is never present as an object of possible experience. So when a baby first encounters its mother, it, it encounters sort of two things. He calls it perceptual complex, which is like all of the things that the baby sees and hears. And then the thing complex, which is what the child wants in the mother, which is not never given in perception, but is the only reason that the child is interested in this specific perceptual complex. And then Freud remarks that this thing, this thing complex is something that will come back again and again through the, the child's life, the adult's life, sort of embedded in different perceptual complexes. So what Freud finds at the center of human desire when he's trying to give a purely scientific description of what's at stake for a human is that there is no sort of objective description of what's at stake in human desire because we're looking for something that's never given in experience, that's always a- absent from the environment. So the question becomes like, what, what do you do with this? You can't treat this from the outside. And this is why Freud then turns to think about dreams. And because if the question is, what is this thing that we're looking for? And you can't learn anything about this thing from the perceptual complexes, then it's only in exploring the representations that we make that one can learn something about what's at stake in desire. And dreams become representations of this scene of desire, this thing that mobilizes the drive in a certain sense that is never given. Beautiful. Thank you. Would you be able to say why he calls it a complex here? Why is it a, a thing complex or a perceptual complex? I think, yeah, that's an interesting question. So I think when he's talking about perceptual complexes, he, he's using this to describe the fact that like coming out of a, um, this is coming out of sort of an empiricist tradition where, you know, you're looking at the world and you see you see different things, um, you're associating them together, there are sounds, so like, so you've got, you've got hair and nose and a certain shirt. And so, I mean, all the, all these things form a perceptual complex. Mm-hmm. And then the, the question is, um, what is the thing you're looking for in it? And, you know, it's, it's an interesting question and one that I haven't thought a lot about. Um, but I, I think that this is a real potential difference between the way that Lacan sort of underlines it as a thing and the thing complex for Freud. Because Freud is never like, it. you know, he's he, he sort of wants to know where did this thing complex come from? Where does this thing representation come from? And so in um, The Unconscious, for example, which is sort of this important metapsychological text that Freud works on and as a series of metapsychological texts in the teens, he talks about how there's like a thing presentation and then the word presentation and these things come together. So I think that there's a a sense in Freud that the thing complex is assembled from thing representations. And one of the ways that Lacan really clarifies what's at stake in this distinction in Freud and sort of pushes it further than it is in Freud is by going going back from the text like The Unconscious to the Project for Scientific Psychology, where it's really clear um, in, in the presentation of the scientific psychology that the, the thing is, as, as Lacan puts it, the object of a fundamental hallucination. It's this center of the perceptual world that is never given in the perceptual world. And I think when Freud sort 
sort of changes the tactic through which he's going to try to approach these problems when he changes the tactic from a scientific approach where the thing is what falls out of objective science and reveals this pure subjective dimension to the psychoanalytic approach. He sort of never gives up trying to um, yeah, understand the thing as like he'll, he'll talk about the thing complex or the, the thing presentation as a uh, as a fixation in in his metapsychological text. Whereas for Lacan in sort of like pushing hard on the concept of a thing relying on the project for scientific psychology, it really um, is focused on this object, this impossible object of desire, not a way in which the drive has found an inscription in a certain thing complex, which is the way that Freud sometimes talks about it, but as the this impossible object of desire that is at the center of the perceptual universe within which we each live, but which is um, fundamentally absent from it. Yeah, and this impossible status of the object that we find in this uh, in this approach to the thing seems to really bring out the logic of, of I guess, the psychoanalytic, of certain psychoanalytic practices such as working with dreams, which you have just brought up as well. Like, why would the dream have an important role in, in an analysis? Um, and in what you are explaining, it seems only logical to turn attention to it, right, as a series of of perceptions of something fundamentally absent or as something that really has no, I guess, as something that's independent from the negotiations that are at stake in, in social reality or something like this. Yeah, absolutely. What, one of the things that Willie Apollone, um, who's this psychoanalyst in Quebec City, uses to distinguish this is between the mental representations and perceptions. So like our our engagement with the world, what we're, what we're looking for is a, a mental representation and the world of... The, we live in with other people. The world of conscious experience is a world of perceptions, things that we can name and talk about. And so th the only way to sort of investigate what's at stake in, in desire, what's at stake in the drive is to explore the, the mental representations that mobilize the drive. That And, and these are representations that, that are not given in, in reality, that are not possible objects of perception, but have that pure mental representation. Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, maybe you can say now turning a little bit of attention to to Lacan's seminar seven, where he's bringing this up. We can talk about why there is this kind of disturbing, forbidden, perhaps. What else is there? Like there seems to be some like a style that is attached to this is what I'm trying to point to, like a style to this thing that it could not be just like the most beautiful rainbow you've ever seen. <laughs> You know, or like the one you never saw, let's say, yeah. but instead something that in, brings you in, uh, in the into the field of anxiety much more than of pleasure or something that it's beyond pleasure. Yeah, no, I think that that's a um, that's an excellent question. I, I mean, I think the the way that Lacan puts it I, that I come back to a lot because it's the, it seems like such a forceful presentation of it is that the prohibition of incest is like the condition of speech. I think he says something like that at some point, and be, because. One of the ways he presents dusting is as the absent object that mobilizes the drive. And if dusting is the thing that mobilizes the drive, then attaining this object would be the annihilation of the subject as such, right? Like if, if what one is doing in, one in one's life is looking for the object that would 
be a possible satisfaction, then the attainment of this object would be a, an annihilation of the subject. So you get this um, something which is well beyond the pleasure principle. And, and there, therefore, one of the things that Lacan talks about in Seminar 7 is all of the ways that the law, um, the way that we construct the social, um, sort of keeps this, this thing at a distance. Yeah, so, so like woman is raised to the level of the thing, he'll say. So like this, a woman can be an object of satisfaction for a man only to the degree to which she remains unattainable because that allows a man to represent for himself the object of his desire, um, the, the object of the drive as something that he can never have access to. Whereas having access to it would be an annihilation of, of desire, an, the satisfaction of the drive, sort of this impossible satisfaction would be the death of the subject. I, I think that one of the um, one of the ways that Willie Apollon talks about dusting that I find really like liberating, you know, in, as a way to think about this is he shifts the emphasis from dusting as object to dusting as drive. I, I think that this is a, a really important modification of how we think about psychoanalysis as such, because if the emphasis is placed on the impossible attainment of the object that causes the drive, mm -hmm. then all one can do is find ways to better structure one's non-access to this object. Like if, if having it would be death, if having it would be the end of desire, the end of the drive, then what one needs to do is find ways to, um, to infinitely forestall that, to keep that at a distance. And I, I think that th this is an excellent way of, of thinking about the structure of the social link and the structure of, of the way that relationships are structured, the way that couples are structured, the way that families are often structured as sort of this machinery that allows us to take the other as the object of our desire and yet prevents us from attaining that. And so at a, at a descriptive level, I think that what Lacan's doing there is, is really an excellent description of the way in which we suffer and in the way in which we, we lose access to the drive as the object of the drive is maintained as something that's prohibited. But I also think that what this sort of shift in emphasis with, with Willie Apollon allows a, a a liberation of the energies of the drive from from the idea that there is a um, an object that they need to be kept separate from in other words one can be for the drive um, as opposed to for the maintenance of an object that sustains the drive the the drive is not doesn't need to be maintained as a in a sort of state of impossible tension through a prohibition but and and again I think this is the real, um, the force in, in, in this dimension of Willie Epelon's approach is that you can take the side of the drive as something which is articulated to, um, in, in Willie Epelon's language, a quest for that is for the good of the human. So the drive is not something that needs to be kept apart, that needs to be kept contained, but is something that each each subject can find a way to, to use to express a dimension of a 
that is shared between all subjects, which is therefore good for everyone. So finding a way to express the drive to make a space in the social for this dimension of human experience is it has consequences. And some of these consequences are bad for egos, for um, for ways that for um, some of these things are perceived as bad from the side of the social link. But it is good for all of the people who are caught up in the social link because <laughs> each of us is mobilized, mobilizes and is mobilized by this, this drive that has no object. And we can each take a part of it in order to make more space for that which is at work and expressing itself in other views. Mm-hmm. This makes me think of many things at once. And one of them is, I'm trying to think of these, of the people, of everyone, of <laughs> like, yeah. what is, since we're talking about like a human experience. And it seems on the one hand that there's plenty of resisting and rejecting, first of all, the existence of an object to which we do not have access through a scientific uh, approach. And there must be a reason for that, for this kind of resistance and denial. And at the same time, it makes me think of how widely spread the discourse of discontent is, you know, is is in place right now for many reasons everywhere in the world. Like really, it's not difficult to call anywhere (laughs) and hear about how incompetent governments are about how their everyday life is affected by things like the pandemic or by whatever measures like their social existence is really not something they feel that any of us feel content with. So those two things, so like that, so this discontent seems very much in line with, or, or, or more than anything, like amenable to hearing about this thing that disrupts a social link that seems to be already broken anyway. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, you you hear the same voices of discontent seek desperately all kinds of things that are that seem to be first of all blocking the drive as much as possible, and and just like putting as much space as possible between the object and the subject, and perhaps not changing the relationship in any way, like like to go with the Lacanian approach, like not even modifying that that relation, let alone taking the side of the drive and its consequences. So what do you think about that? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I mean, I think that like right now, it's it's sort of the most unsurprising thing in the world, at least like, yeah, I I think in in, in general terms, like in Canada and the United States, I'm I'm sure other places too, to to say that like that the function of my relationship to um, my significant other is to provide an adequate object to sustain my desire and drive. I, I just, I don't think that's something that's surprising. Like, I, I think that that's, you know, you listen to Dan Savage, this idea that the function of the social is to structure a a sort of an internal relationship to an excess. It's not something that's surprising now, I don't think. And, you know, reading Lacan from um, 50, 60 years ago, it seems that these things were surprising, right? This was the idea that your relationship to the other is uh, is structuring a relationship to an excess or a desire, a drive, to a sexuality that is that cuts you off from others, that is not itself caused by the other person. So, so, so this, this is to say, like, a lot of what 
Lacan is working to do in, in my reading in around Seminar 7 is to really explore the way that this relationship to one's own desire, to what's it, to these energies that are mobilized in us towards something. A lot of what he's doing is trying to show how the social structures this thing which is in the logic of the subject. So you have like the, the graph of desire, for example, in which sort of shows how the fantasy structures a relationship to an object which maintains the subject between sort of an annihilating proximity to like something like dusting, between that sort of annihilating proximity to dusting and what what we say, what exists in the social link. And, and that's not surprising anymore, I don't think. I think that that's something that has become an object of shared knowledge. So it seems to me that the perspective we take on this is not, however, often that of how to change our relationship to desire, drive, um, enjoyment in order to um, go beyond the way that this is structured by the prohibitions, power imbalances, insatisfactions of the social link, but rather to find ways to sort of better structure this in the power imbalances, violences, um, et cetera, of the social link. So like building a wall to keep this foreign element out or um, like, I mean, I think that the the genius of um, certain forms of genius is right. Like what's at stake in um, a lot of the dissatisfactions that we have, the the violent attitudes towards other people, towards other races is sort of seems to be a desperate attempt to continue to structure this excess of the drive through various kinds of prohibitions, ideologies, etc. And yeah, so I think that there's a there's both a knowledge about this, but what we do with the knowledge about this is to try to find ways to to maintain this fantasy. And I think what psychoanalysis can do now, which is, I think for these reasons, like more than what psychoanalysis had to be asked to do before, is find a way not, not only to allow us to like better structure this, but to take responsibility for what's at stake in the drive outside of the prohibitions and and um, relationships that are established in the social link in order to, you know, sublimate it in Lacanian terms or in, in order to structure relationship to this excess. And, you know, this is a, um, it's a tall order in some sense. On, on the other hand, it's, I think it's really what's required because there's a proximity because of the fact that we all know that something is so dramatically not working out in the way that the way that our lives are structured by the social, that the, the only way forward is by finding an access to that part of ourselves that is structured by structured by these relationships. But because of the way these relationships structure our relationship to it, 
we are cut off from any access to a responsibility for the drive, for enjoyment, for desire. And I think that what psychoanalysis can do is sort of leave behind that question of how the, the social structures are relationship to the other as a possible object of desire, as a possible object that could satisfy the drive in, in order to take responsibility in good ways, not, not to take responsibility for something bad, but in order to, to have the enjoyment of, to have the, res- the, the, the responsibility for this dimension of experience that outside of the, these failed structurations. That was a long and uh, circuitous answer to your question. <laughs> it's, a bi- it's like a big situation, yeah. so it only yeah. calls for it. And well, I thought of two things here. One about how Willy Apollone, since you're mentioning his approach to the drive, desire, enjoyment, takes the, uh, the psychotic structure as a model rather than the neurotic structure that is more common, and I guess, in the history of psychoanalysis and its practices in different ways and to different degrees. That one thing he talks about is the psychotic feeling like he or she is responsible for the profound failures that, or the defect in language, that they, that it's there, they're in the position to resolve that. And it takes, it takes form in ways that are perhaps, uh, that are precisely not acceptable to the, to the social link, but also perhaps not as productive as they could be in the end. Mm -hmm. But there's a, an attempt, like what's happening there is that mobilization of the drive to do something about what's broken. Mm-hmm. So if we take that as a model and want to work with it, not only for psychotics, but as neurotics as well, or in perversion as well, mm-hmm. maybe what I'm calling for is an example, like what, how does that take shape or what kind, I mean, that's always perhaps a novelty or it's by definition a surprise what form it's going to take, mm-hmm. but perhaps we we could try to talk about a particular, yeah, a particular example that gives us bits yeah, sure. beyond a, a delusion or something. Well, because I think that there's um, the way that you said um, the psychotic is is working on something tr- and for, for the good of everyone. Um, like, I think that is indeed a model. I, I think that the place where the delusion is modified in, in my understanding of how the, the clinic of psychosis works in, in Quebec City is um, the delusion is sort of an attempt to to fix the defect in language for the benefit of everyone. And what psychoanalytic experience sort of reveals is that the defect in language isn't a bad thing. It, it's sort of the whole point, or it's it's really a good thing that there's a defect in language because that this means that b- because what's what we each experience is something that is inaccessible from through language. It doesn't need to be protected from the other's knowledge because the other's knowledge has nothing to do with what's at stake in experience. So the question then becomes how to act on the drive, how to act for the drive because in the space that's opened up because there's a defect in language, because language doesn't say all. And in other words, it's not a problem to be solved, but a way to sort of put language, the the law, 
all of these things in in service of what is um, insisting outside of it, what remains. And this is something that is true for all of us. And, you know, like, you know, the the examples are like, I think Greta Thunberg is, I mean, it's like the, these all the examples are sort of like, well, because when people do this in dramatic ways, it's like dramatic. So when, when you hear Greta Thunberg talk, she's not, um, she's calling forth a responsibility that we all have as human beings. She's not asking, she's not trying to repair, she's asking us to all work together based on our shared humanity to fix a problem that affects everyone. And it's not to solve a problem of desire or to, um, but it's to work together to um, change the conditions and structures of our life in order to allow more life to happen. And I think that, yeah, speech is a um, real speech um, that leaves this dimension of asking for a response, but rather which wants to mobilize and make a space for other people's speech is a way out of this. Uh, like as, as another sort of smaller example is, is um, we were talking about this the other day, like um, T- Terry Crews, I, I think, is his, who's this Black actor. He was at a, a party at an at a agency and like someone grabbed his penis and his response to this was to like talk about what this is, like what were the consequences of this? What were the effects of this? In other words, like there's a, there's a way of um, of speaking which opens up space for other people's experience, which makes experience what's real um, as opposed to pretending that everything is going all right, that there's a possible solution that will come from a, come from another. And yeah, so I think in, in concrete examples are um, are places where people speak in order to um, open a space that will be um, that will allow other people to speak, that will allow other people to act. In other words, that it that opens a space that isn't one of like zero sum gain, that isn't a closing off of space for others, but an opening of space. Yeah, that's interesting that you're coming back to speech here in a very different way. So it's not so in. Initially, you were talking about uh, the difference between action and things one says, <laughs> or the things that are written as a dimension with words that is not doing that, that is not doing, that is not an act. <laughs> Whereas here, you're talking about a speech that acts. <laughs> yeah, because I, I mean, I think speech, that, like an, an act is something that, or, or the I think what's, what's an act is its consequences in some sense. Mm-hmm. And so when speech has consequences, it's an act or when speech is is speech it's an act and it goes beyond what can be said or it's a way of making a space for it's mobilized by the body by what's real in in experience what kinds of examples were you thinking about I'm just curious. Actually, the Greta Thunberg also came to my mind. I, w- I was surprised that you, or maybe I shouldn't be, but that was on my mind. It felt like telepathy. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. I was trying to, I mean, I, I I guess that personally, I've looked for this a lot in art, yet with regard to the context that I was, or that we were evoking and to, I don't know, a bunch of conversations that precede this one, not just with you, but just around this, uh, it seems that there's always a question of like of whether something aesthetic as a work of art can actually change anything. Like, I guess that there's like this opposition to maybe uh, political activism or something like this. But so, and Greta 
was an example in political activism that rings differently, I guess, in that that it's not so much about reinforcing a position as victim or a position as hero as it is about, as you said, opening space for mm-hmm. for other modes of vitality in in everyone. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that like the aesthetic is like talking about aesthetic experience in artworks. Um, I, I sometimes like for, forget that aesthetic experience is a dimension of subjective experience. It's like purely subjective experience. It's not in the artwork or the artwork is the way in which an experience is brought into existence, but is never reducible to it. There's this example that recently really caught my mind in in, in Kanzler Critique, where he's talking about how you, you, you have aesthetic experience in the wild, but it's only in human society that we start to do artworks. His example is like planting a flower garden. The reason you plant a flower garden is because you have a subjective experience, um, an, an aesthetic experience of the beautiful, and you want other people to have that aesthetic experience. So you plant flowers so that the others will have that experience. It's not the flowers. The flowers are like a way to realize this experience. And it, it's such a silly example um, that that I found it because you push it to the limit. And like the, the reason that you would like be willing to like live with other people and like go through all the chaos that is like negotiating social relationships is so that you could realize, make manifest this purely subjective dimension of experience in others. And I think that artwork, like what's what's truly at stake there is that feeling, which is the aesthetic. I was, um, someone just mentioned to me the other day that the Stendhal syndrome, do you you know the Stendhal's like which? I thought, I think I read something about recently i'm not remembering what it involves i have no idea if it's, if it's real or not there seems to be like some debate on that on the um on the internet about it. but it's like people who go to um to florence and pass out while looking at these works of art it's like a, a physical reaction that heart palpitations they can't breathe you have to like they have to call the hospital um so there, there's like a and it seems to happen with like some some frequency um and which is just to say like there's something when art is doing its work it's the occasion to live a dimension of experience to manifest something as real that is refused that is rejected um, in the social relationships that we spend so much of our time in so I think that in in, in that sense it's it's art is a um, is an is an excellent example of it not but again not because it, it sublimates something but because it's the occasion opens a space for something. So if there was no defect in language, if the social link worked, um, we wouldn't need art because there would be no experience that was outside of what is sort of easily communicable within the field of shared social reality. But you like you have artworks and they um, open, a sometimes they open a dimension of your own experience that is purely subjective and it goes beyond what you knew was inside of you. And and yet the fact that someone could produce an artwork that has this effect means that it's there in everyone. It's universal. And I mean, I think the the reason, like the the reason that that Greta Thunberg is so, so striking is that unless you're so far down some like ideological hole (laughs) where you're able to refuse this dimension, you're able to produce blockades against experience that when you listen
listen to her speak, she is evoking, she is manifesting um, a dimension of experience in her that awakens, that realizes a dimension of experience in the people who are hearing her. And it makes that dimension of experience real. um, And it mobilizes it, not with respect to something that's prohibited, not with respect to what's given, but it mobilizes it with respect to a beyond, um, a beyond a beyond of the ridiculous, horrible situations that are here, not to escape from them, but in order to, um, it, it, it reveals our shared humanity like in, in a real way, like you, you, you listen to certain people speak, you, you look at certain works of art and you can't refuse that what is most important is something that goes beyond what's given, goes beyond um, satisfaction, goes beyond yeah. prohibitions. Yeah. yeah. Maybe as a way of ending, we could just kind of come back to the thing in order to see where, where to situate it mm-hmm. in this kind of sought relationship to the drive and taking responsibility of the drive. I mean, I think that like one of the things that's striking for me, like reading Freud's case studies is um, how how often they're sort of unsatisfying (laughs) because it's not clear or often seems to be that at at the level of his metapsychology, there's something that goes so far that that goes beyond what one could do with it, that one can only like try to pursue it. But you you, you read his his case studies sometimes and it's like, how are you going to um, find a way to structure your relationship to something in your relationship. So like, Dora, how are you going to find a man to marry? Um, what are, How are you going to um, find a way to attach the object that mobilizes the drive to one of the things, one of the perceptual complexes that is identifiable within the social world that one lives in? And I think that in Lacan, sometimes the same kind of situation seems like not because if if you need to and this is maybe like a a, not in Lacan so much as a style of reading Lacan but if it's necessary to structure your relationship to the thing to the impossible object of a drive in order to maintain desire in order to maintain life then one is always looking for a, a way to inscribe this in a social structure that's there and I think that what comes out in in these examples about the aesthetic, about about political action that goes beyond um, like partisan politics into what can humans do together to improve the world for humans is a relationship to the drive where and this this is to, to my mind the, the the line that Willie Apollon develops where the the object of the drive is um, the human to come is opening a space where the human can manifest itself and, and and there's no horizon to that there's no need to structure that as the other side of a prohibition and this is a difficult task because in in the subjective experience um, of each of us our encounters with what is what is real in humans what is real in ourselves what's what's real in our mother what's real in our father and our siblings is an excess that we don't when we're kids when we're infants when we don't have the the means to do anything about we're helpless in front of it in Freud's terms and so the question is like how to explore this experience that is excessive that we're helpless before that's traumatic when we're infants when we're when we don't have any speech when we don't have any
any way to act, how, how to to explore that as not a trauma from the outside, but as like the very center of human experience, as the thing that's evoked, as the thing that we have access to when we when we see a piece of art, when we watch a movie that opens up this aesthetic dimension. And that doesn't need to be um, structured through a prohibition. It needs to be, um, it's something to be sort of conquered inside of us. Not, not conquered as in control, but like as a scene of possible experience, not as a, um, uh, not as a trauma that needs to be avoided to kept on the other side of a limit. So in other words, the movement of the thing from the object, the missing object that mobilizes the drive to the thing as a way of, as the drive itself, which is mobilized by our capacity to make representations, by the fact of our humanness, by our, our quest for something beyond what's given, sort of takes us out of this economy of prohibitions, this economy of, of structuring this in order to maintain maintain an adequate tension or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I think like for me, it's it's um, that movement from the thing as the missing object of the drive to the thing as the drive that opens up that space. It, it doesn't mean that there's less work to do or that this is a, um, but I, I do think it opens a space because to see the relationship to the drive as one of prohibited object or annihilation, that's a tough situation to be in. And it's, it's <laughs> you know, um, see, seeing the, the the drive as one's body as mobilized towards a beyond that is not hostile to life. You know, like w- Willie Apollone, he talks about the death drive as, as not the drive to die, but you're willing to die for something, um, sort of in, in a dimension of the sublime. So what, what is it that we're willing to die for, not what is it that is... Um, pushing us to die. <laughs> and I, I that, that sort of opening of the fact that there's no need for a horizon for the drive, that the drive doesn't need to have an object, but that the drive is a, a sort of an endless mobilization of our energies in quest of something that is for the benefit of everyone, that opens a space for everyone, is, is a really important modification for me that comes mm-hmm. with Lily Apollon's metapsychology. Yeah. A lot of what you've said brought to mind words that Proust wrote in the in the novel in the search for lost time. Like, oh, how interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, like on what the work of art can transmit and then in what you were, I don't know, just now <laughs> it was happening again. But but yeah, I think we'll stop here. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for joining me. 